Welcome back. Uh, it's Lars Hammer here from Lord of Grace. Uh, welcome back to another one of my little, I don't know, classes, lectures, sessions on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Religionless Christianity. Uh, again, this is an idea that he started exploring as he was in prison towards the end of his life. This particular video is the third installment. I, I got the link to the previous two underneath. And what I'm doing, if you're new or catching this one the first time, I'm going through some thoughts. We'll read through a little bit of his writings, and then I'll kind of give my explanation, maybe some commentary on this. Uh, and his thoughts were written to, in letters that he wrote in prison to his pastor friend, Eberhard Betke. And he's getting, uh, like I say, towards the end of his life, and he's reflecting on Christianity and the church and what it means to be a Christian. What does a Christian faith mean in a world of uh, science and physics, in a world of modern philosophy? And I was realizing as I'm looking back and doing editing on the previous two, uh, how kind of almost jaded Bonhoeffer is becoming in some of these things, or how uh, maybe disillusioned he's become with a lot of the Christianity of his day. Uh, and of course, it makes sense. I mean, he's sitting there in Germany uh, in, in the middle of World War II in a world where, what, 98% or something of the German pastors took the Hitler oath. Now, there's a lot of reason for that. There's a long history of why they did that. And as, as I've said, it's always easier to judge when I'm sitting here in the comfort of America than to judge those who knew that if you didn't take the oath, you might end up six feet underground. Uh, the Nazis were more than capable of doing that. So, but on the other hand, uh, it wasn't like there was even a little bit of, I mean, a resistance. The resistance to Hitler was really small. There was not much speaking up. There was not much action taken. There'd been a lot of talk about being Christian disciples, but when the rubber hit the road and it came time to actually step up and carry your cross and follow Jesus, uh, people just kind of seem to be nowhere to be found. And it makes sense that he would be disillusioned, but his disillusionment is going uh, deeper, I think, than um, simply whether people stood up and protested. I think he's understanding well that there's philosophical issues, there's scientific issues, particularly with physics and the closed universe, and we'll get into some of that. But this is what he's dealing with. So, anyways, uh, if you're joining in for the first time, you don't have to have previous knowledge. Like I say, I'll read it through. I'll have the words there on the screen. You can follow along with that. Um, and I do encourage you to go check out a biography of Bonhoeffer. Just as I've always said, not Eric Metaxas's. Uh, he does revisionist history, makes Bonhoeffer into something he's not. But read some of the other ones. Um, and so, uh, just uh, one more little bit of background, I guess. Uh, that is that uh, today we're going to, I'm titling this God as the Stopgap. Bonhoeffer didn't title his letters, he just wrote them. I had to pick a title. I'm picking that because he does use that phrase in the letters. And what are we talking about as the stopgap? Well, you might have heard in atheist arguments, and when they list the arguments for God that they, in their minds, easily and obviously disprove, one of them is called God of the Gaps. Uh, God of the gaps. And God of the gaps, cynically, they're under, you know, a lot of these atheist anti-God arguments or 
caricaturizations of Christian arguments are kind of straw manish. But it goes something like this, that believers simply say when they don't know something, when there's a gap in our knowledge, they say it must be God right? If, if somebody gets healed of a disease, it must be God. It couldn't possibly be that there's an explanation there that we just haven't found. Or um, we look at the heavens and we say, well, you know, we don't know uh, everything that's out there. It's so great and awesome. It must be God. Now, I look out in the heavens and I do say it must be God, but not because I don't know. But that's the idea. You can't, the, the, the caricaturization is that religious people simply stop thinking and stop asking questions and stop inquiring and simply put the word God in the gaps of their knowledge. And of course, you know, as, and I think I quoted Tyson before, but he says this with the ancient alien people. He says, you know, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean that it's aliens. You know, just because you don't know how the pyramids were built, although I don't think that's quite the mystery anymore. But say you don't know how they, how they managed to pull that off, that doesn't prove it was aliens. Um, and I think that he would probably make that same argument, that just because you don't know what the answer is, that the, the art and ability to find an answer does not prove that it was God. Uh, but that whole idea of the God of the gaps, that, that kind of philosophy, that apologetic, it goes back a ways, long before Bonhoeffer sitting there in the 1940s. Um, it goes back, and I don't want to get too deep into philosophy, but you have to do a little bit of it. It goes back to the 16, 1700s, and we're talking with Enlightenment philosophers. And they started putting forth this idea, and it started primarily in geology, of what they call the closed universe that basically the universe is set up, it runs on its own laws, uh, and those laws are predictable, they are consistent over time, uh, and it's merely a question for us of figuring out what those laws are. God does not intervene and mess with those laws. Everything has an explanation that can be found. Everything that happens has a cause within our world, and that cause can be found. Maybe we haven't found it, but we can find it. So you have to picture the universe as, you know, basically just a contained bubble, and God is, if God exists, which they all weren't necessarily behind, but if God exists, God is outside that bubble. The bubble is contained, it's self-contained. It's kind of like um, the jaw, those glass jars. I saw the, you might have seen the thing on social media, some guy in the 60s had a gigantic jug and he filled it full of uh, all these plants and put some water in there and I think he even put some insects and stuff in there, um, sealed it up and I think he said he had to open it once, once like five years later to add some more microbes or something and then it stayed sealed for 40 years, it self-perpetuated. Uh, closed contained. That's how the closed universe kind of theory works. I, I'm simplifying, but think of it that way. Our world is closed, and God is the guy holding the jug, maybe looking in and, and, and looking in from time to time, maybe yelling into the jug, maybe staring into the jug, but not entering in it. God does not move in in history. God does not move things around. God doesn't change the weather. God doesn't, God doesn't shrink tumors. God doesn't do anything. God's outside it. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a big believer in this. 
And he, was, he believed in a theory called deism. Basically, God set the closed universe and created it, wound it up like a clock and set it going, and then stood back. And comes in only to teach good morals and ethics. And that's why Jefferson made his own Bible where he took all the miracles out. Because miracles and supernatural things imply that God is violating the laws of the universe, which simply cannot happen to him. But it's important to have good ethics, he taught. And so what happened in all of this philosophically is as philosophers kept coming up more and more with explanations for things and they kept attacking more and more the validity of claims of miracles, uh, you know, Jesus didn't actually walk on water, you can't prove that he did, etc. Uh, what ends up happening is the religious people get backed into a corner. They either have to argue one of two things. One, they argue, you're wrong, philosopher Hume, what, who, uh, he was a big one. You're wrong, Hume. God does intervene, and I know this, and I saw it because I prayed with this person, and the tumor shrunk. You're wrong. God does intervene. You can sort of double down on it, or they could retreat. And what the more intellectual Christians in Europe did is they retreated. They retreated behind scientific knowledge. So as scientific knowledge grew, they kept saying, well, God is, God is where our knowledge isn't, you know, and essentially they pushed God out of the world. God is in the sky, God is in another plane, God is after death, and that's what matters, right? And so essentially they pushed God out of the world, and so they retreated, and yet it's kind of the, and, and that general disposition is still with us today. You'll generally find a lot of your more progressive Christians get real nervous to talk about God intervening in the world. They'll get real nervous to actually pray for a shrinking tumor. They will pray that God will conform my will, God give me strength in the struggle. I mean, I do those prayers too. Uh, that's a good thing. I'm not dissing that. Uh, but uh, they won't pray that the tumor will actually shrink. They won't. They, they feel like that's a line because deep down, that's kind of unscientific, right? Uh, and so they get nervous about that. And on the other hand, you know, I've run into many kind of more non-denominational preachers who will absolutely pray for the shrunken tumor. And the tumor is caused by demons and the demons need to be cast out. And so they're doubling down or they're retreating. And both approaches are not quite right. One approach is always sort of God against the laws of nature. The other is God outside of the laws of nature. But what about God in nature, in our world? Uh, instead of God being the gaps in our knowledge, what about God being in our knowledge? That's what he's starting to tinker with this time. That's what Bonhoeffer is tinkering with, and he's sort of struggling with in his head, and he's throwing out these ideas, and that's what we're going to look to. So hopefully I haven't, uh, I haven't just bored you to death with uh, background, but let's get started. Let's look a little bit at uh, some of the text itself, and we're going to jump in on the book uh, at about page uh, three. 11, 3, 12. I'll, I'll move over so we can get the picture up there on the side. And um, I'll read some of this uh, and we'll get going. We'll look, at, we'll look a little deeper. Here goes. 
Weissecker's book, The World View of Physics, is keeping me very busy. It has again brought home to me quite clearly how wrong it is to use God as a stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. If, in fact, the frontiers of knowledge are being pushed farther and farther back, and that is bound to be the case, then God is being pushed back with them and is therefore continually in retreat. We are to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. God wants us to realize his presence, not in unsolved problems, but in those that are solved. That is true of the relationship between God and scientific knowledge, but it is also true of the wider human problem of death, suffering, and guilt. It is now possible to find, even for these questions, human answers that take no account of God, or no account whatever of God. Wow. So this is Bonhoeffer, yeah, sitting just for the fun of it reading physics books. And, um, but, you know, again, he's in prison, he's got time, right? But he's, he, he's, he's approaching the question flat out. And, you know, again, this whole series of these whole readings, they're not terribly inspirational, but they do ask the hard questions that I think need to be asked. And Bonhoeffer is basically just lo looking at the reality of the situation head on and saying, look, this is what's going on right here, right? I'm reading about physics the laws of physics, the rules of physics. And he says, you know, it's, it's getting real obvious to me that I, we just got to give up on this gap stuff. We, we, we just cannot continue to teach the God of the gaps. We can't continue to teach God as beyond our knowledge because, frankly, knowledge is growing. And as, as the line keeps getting farther and farther, as our knowledge keeps getting more and more, we're pushing God farther and farther out and farther and farther away. And, and, that's, and so that's what he's saying. And he also says, it is kind of interesting and maybe a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe a little bit judgmental when he talks about laziness. Um, and I think he had said that before, that there is a certain laziness in simply wanting to say, well, you know, God did it rather than have to ask the tough questions. But that's what he's confronting. Um, and he talks about God as the stopgap for the incompleteness of our knowledge. There is a certain uh, maybe psychological truism. There's a guy named, I think, Pierce is his name. He's a philosopher and his whole atheist. And his whole argument is that we are wired as people to want to have answers because answers give us certainty, and certainty makes us feel safe, and when we feel safe, we are at ease. And so we are always, as people, trying to put ourselves at ease by having answers and certainty. And he says, the world is full of things that we don't know, but when we don't know something, that creates a dis-ease, and so we and he says, we cynically pick, an, we, we just pick an answer and we stick to it because picking that answer and sticking to it uh, eliminates our dis-ease. Uh, and this is the kind of the argument too, you know, the religion as the psychological crutch argument that you hear people say, well, if you were just strong enough and bold enough to just handle and face reality, you know, but you can't face reality and deal with reality, so you hide behind your fairy tales. Um, but 
Bonhoeffer's kind of a little bit thinking that there might be some truth to that. And you know, certainly with some people, with some strands of Christianity, I can see the truth in that. I have met people who, you know, who are really claim to be solid in their Christian faith, but gosh darn it, you know, you don't ask too many questions and you don't rock the boat uh, because that creates dis-ease and their faith gets easily rattled and shaken by, you know, a sort of foundational question. I would imagine that kind of Christian is not watching my video right now. Um, and, um, but there's a certain kernel of truth to that, right? There's a certain kernel of truth to that, that churches have, in essence, made, I don't want to say a closet industry, out of, uh, but that's part of what we see ourselves as doing, is providing comfort and in the midst of discomfort, which is a good thing, but if, our, if the way in which we do that is to provide hard certainty in the face of uncertainty, <coughs> simply to uh, alleviate your psychological nervousness, your anxiety, um, then we're not really doing a disservice. We're not helping you to deal with reality. We're simply, in a sense, helping you hide from reality. And I say this when I get up front over there and I talk all the time, that one of my goals when I preach is that I want my parishioners, I want the people following along to be stronger Christians, more faithful Christians, to have a faith that's more resilient, that isn't easily shattered, and that isn't built on whitewashing over anxiety, but on boldly sort of encountering things. Uh, that I'm not here to cover your anxiety, but to help you work through the, the reality of our world. Uh, I think a stronger faith doesn't have to be as nervous about that. But, so this is kind of what it's right, right? That uh, it's brought home that, as he says, God can't be the, in, the, the incompleteness of our knowledge. And he goes on with what I kind of said before. If the frontiers of knowledge are pushed further back, then God is being pushed back with them. If God is outside our knowledge, the more our knowledge grows, the less there's a need for God. And uh, of course, what kind of a God is so, in essence, we make God smaller, right? What kind of God is so small that you know, knowledge reduces God? Doesn't that kind of imply then, in a cynical way, that you would want to keep people ignorant so that you could keep them more faithful? Uh, a critic would say that. I don't think people are quite that cynical. But I am reminded, there was a story someone was telling me the other day. I thought it was illustrative, there we go, uh, of part of the problem. There was a young woman who came to her pastor and said, where do dinosaurs come from? Now she's like, what, teenage, college years. I think she knows where dinosaurs come from. She's trying to see what the pastor will say. Where do dinosaurs come from? And she said the guy just sat there and got quiet and hemmed and hawed and well, um, yeah, yeah. And this pastor that she asked, I mean, he went to a four-year liberal arts college. Uh, he has a bachelor's degree. He went to a four-year seminary. This is not an uneducated person. This is not a fly-by-night person. Not somebody that anybody thought was a literal creationist. Why is he hemming and hawing about a question as simple as where dinosaurs came from, right? 
because I, I thought maybe he really is a closet creationist underneath it all. So I went and I talked to my dad, retired pastor, and my dad gave me the knowledge. He, he knows this individual, and he said, you know, what you're dealing with is not what the pastor believes, because to this particular guy, his own beliefs don't matter. He's worried about what other people will think of what he says. He's worried that if he tells that young woman, yes, dinosaurs evolved from, you know, microbes and fish and blah, 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 then she will run around the church saying, the pastor said dinosaurs evolved and evolution happens. And this pastor knows he has a percentage of his members who are pretty fragile and literalist and full of anxiety. And if they hear that the pastor's teaching evolution, they might get mad, they might yank their pledges. And so as a political maneuver, he's trying to avoid putting his foot down because he doesn't want to offend members. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He has people who he knows are anxious, and rather than try to strengthen their faith, he's simply content with feeding them constant reassurances. And I think that he's probably also being very cynical, going, well, that you know, college girl, how much money does she give? Whereas that anxious person over there, well, you know, she's on three committees and tithes. You know, he's following the money and following his business interests, uh, only validating every negative thing that critics say about Christianity. Um, but, you know, he's, he's sort of worried, you know. If the frontiers of our knowledge, you know, got, 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 got it, don't, don't, push people's, don't push people's knowledge. All right. And then it says it's continually in retreat, right? Continually in retreat. And we know this. Sort of culturally, we know this, right? That, that as we live our lives today in secular society, we live them less and less as if God exists, right? The, the default in American society is non-religion. You don't go about your life at, with religion as a part of it. It's like an extra thing out there. Whereas there was a time in the culture when religion was just deeply embedded in it and a normal part of life. But now it got separated out and it's separated out. It's either weird or maybe a negative view of it in many people's minds. But culturally, it's getting pushed out. Atheism is the new normal or at least some sort of, you know, functional atheism, right? Um, and the more it gets pushed out, the more following Jesus becomes a disruption of normal. So, so fo choosing to fo follow Jesus becomes something that is a change from the normal life. It is stepping away from the normal life, and that can put you in positions of social ridicule or, you know, uh, getting kicked, you know, losing friends. In theory, that could happen, right? It's a disruption to the normal life, not a part of it. Uh, we also know that intellectually, when we ask questions about life, we don't bring God into the questions as much. Even a lot of believers, when we ask a question, we just, we ask the question with a closed universe worldview assumption, not with a universe with God in it. You will find this being different in a lot of the rest of the world. Uh, you talk to Christians and believers in Africa or South America, for example, a lot of them will just, uh, they don't, this closed universe stuff you know, they're not so hip on that. You know, God is very real there. But intellectually, right, 
more and more of our answers are coming without God. And so it becomes harder and harder, I think, as Bonhoeffer is saying, for people who have an education, for people who reflect on these questions, to subscribe to a belief system based on not asking those questions, to subscribe to a belief system that requires them to suspend their knowledge that people just can't do it anymore. And those who can do it largely out of a sort of almost a psychological need, an anxiety. It could be a cultural anxiety, you know, the culture's changing, uh, but the church is the fortress against it. Or, you know, I, I'm nervous in my own life. I won't lie that I've seen many people who are fundamentalist who are also very anxious about the world and the change of the culture and those things in the rest of their life. Um, I won't say all, Eva, I won't even give you a percentage, but it does happen. There are people for whom Pierce is correct. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, that we find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. You almost got to sit on that for a minute and just say that again. That we find God, this is what we need to do. We need to find God in what we know, not in what we don't know. So Bonhoeffer is saying, let's throw away both of these paradigms, both of God outside the closed universe and God stepping in occasionally into the closed universe to mess with the rules. Let's, put, let's see God in the universe. Let's see God in the universe, in what we know. So the more we know, the more we know God. So as our knowledge expands, our faith should expand. And again, faith, faith isn't about knowledge. Faith is about trust. Really, biblically, faith is about trust. Do you trust God? Do you trust God's promises? I think too often our culture equates faith with blind obedience to doctrine or I pick a story, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, right? That's not what faith is even biblically, but we kind of believe that. But he's saying we need to find God in what we know. You know, it's a lot of, there's a lot of great minds in physics, you know, who have done this. Heisenberg himself, the guy who came up with the Heisenberg principle, uh, was not a cold atheist. Uh, he tended to find that, the, that his, spirit, his faith was strengthened and it, again, got kind of abstract at times, but the deeper he looked. Einstein was also very much the same way. He never became a full atheist, but the, clearly knowing what he did about physics, he could not subscribe to a, a pure supernatural God or a God of emptiness. But it was hard for people to figure out how do you frame, how do we talk about God without either of those paradigms? How do we talk about God as neither outside the natural or supernatural? Um, how do we do that? Uh, you know, that's a whole new language. It's a whole new language. And Bonhoeffer doesn't say how we do that. He raises the question, which is part of what's fun here, right? And the next phrase, these are all, these are all like zingers. You almost want to make a meme of each one. Not in unsolved problems, but in those that are solved. God isn't the answer to things we can't figure out, but we see God in the things we can figure out. 
you, yeah, again, you, you just want to stop and think about that, you know. There was a, a physics problem that came up that um, called quantum entanglement. Uh, I'm not a physicist, but I find this particular thing kind of interesting. In certain circumstances, some subatomic particles will mirror each other. They'll behave exactly the same way across a wide distance, sometimes across the planet. And it came up as Einstein was doing his theories, and they basically said, uh, all the other physicists, Einstein, this is, this is the way it is. The equations work, this is what should happen. And Einstein called it something like spooky coincidences or something. He felt like it was too mystical or supernatural. It just, it can't be, he said, it can't be. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't really believe in quantum entanglement, refused to believe in it. Well, now we've actually observed it and tested it and proven that it actually happens. We don't have, uh, I don't think, real answers for the why figured out, although you'd have to ask somebody far more knowledgeable than me on that. But, you know, I watched NOVA too, and they proved it. It does happen. The equations worked. Um, but you look into that, and, you know, some of these the physicists will look into it, and they will, you know, realize, you know, that their sort of sense of awe and wonder at, and meaning increases as they learn more about these things, whereas I would imagine a fundamentalist would see something about quantum entanglement and say, well, God is waving the second particle to make it match the first, um, which is kind of unrealistic, right? Uh, but it's asking the question, how do we see God in the things that, in the problems that are solved? That God is part of, in the solution, not only in what we can't figure out. Um, and then he goes on, and then he takes, it, takes an interesting turn. So he goes from science to much more spiritual, psychological here. In problems, right? Uh, let me find my spot. Um, but it is also true of the wider human problems of death, suffering, and guilt. It is now possible to find, even for those questions, human answers that take no account of God. So, he's, this is, he's, he's, God is not just the stopgap for the scientific intellectual negative. It, God has become the stopgap God has become what fills in sort of the psychological negative, the spiritual negative, right? Problems of death, suffering, guilt, right? Because these are problems that often don't have good answers. That's why they fit God of the gaps theology really well. There isn't a good answer. Um, and so that's why we say, God must have a way, or there must be a reason, or, or God is present in that. Now, I will argue, and I've done many times, that I think we are more likely to ask spiritual questions in times of death, suffering, and guilt. I think we are less confident, we're less cocky, uh, less self-assured that we are perfectly capable of solving all our own problems by ourselves when situations of death, suffering, and guilt come about. And I think that's only natural. And there are, there are many people who have, you know, had a similar thing. A lot of them will say, well, it doesn't mean I'm becoming a Christian just because I realized that I had an experience, you know, during death, suffering, and guilt. Okay. 
uh, I get it that you're kind of an intellectual and you're nervous about the label. So there is a side of that that I think is very good. I'm all for sitting and praying and being with someone in death, suffering, and guilt, and talking about God and meaning in that point. Where Bonhoeffer's coming from is intellectually, that is God not in the good times too? You know, do we have a place where we can experience God in a way as churches and a structure for us to find experience of God in joy and happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment, not just in death, suffering, and guilt, right? Again, can we find God on the positive side, not just on the negative? Um, and uh, so, why don't we, we'll keep going. Finally, we'll get to the next slide. Uh, so here we go. In point of fact, people deal with these questions without God. It has always been so. And it is simply not true to say that only Christianity has the answers to them. As to the idea of solving problems, it may be that the Christian are just as good at, as, are just as convincing, or I'm sorry, are just as unconvincing or convincing, my type is kind of small here, as any others. Here again, God is no stopgap. He must be recognized as the center of life, not when we are at the end of our resources. It is his will to be recognized in life, and not only when death comes, in health and in vigor, not only in suffering, in our activities, and not only in sin. He's reiterating what he just said, right? And he's saying that more and more, the church does not have the market on people dealing with these problems. That, that as people start coming up with solutions to their problems without God, we're, getting, we're losing our market space because, again, we've built our whole market on the problem and not on finding God in the solution. And so, and, and he says, people are finding their stuff without God, right? And, um, you know, you, you get that. Now the secular world, it used to be when people grieved, they went to their church community. Now you can just pick up your phone and hire an, a therapist. The therapist could be a total atheist and will help you talk about your feelings as Carl Rogers helped you explain to get in touch with your feelings. There are ways in which we deal with our problems without God. And, and, and I've, I've, I've made this critique in churches more than once that you know, we in churches put a huge emphasis on being present in sickness. And we should be present for one another in sickness. We should be present for one another when they're in the hospital. I'm gonna go visit someone today. So I'm not against being present in sickness, but I was very much reminded of, it was a guy, Bill Eason, uh, was a church, one of these church growth guys, wrote lots of books. Um, he has a great one called Sacred Cows Make Gourmet Burgers, where he talks about church change and control and committees. But he had an interesting line that he wrote, you know, in the late 90s. And, I, and it resonated with me as a young person. Uh, it got me in a lot of trouble talking about it as a pastor. And what he said was, churches can become cults of sickness. This isn't his exact words. I'm paraphrasing. But he said, you can go into a church and 
everything is about sickness. You know, it's who's sick this week, and we pray for the sick, and we name the sick, and we mention the sick, and we preach about being sick, and we preach about cures for your loneliness and your sickness, and, you know, and, and everything becomes about that. And the walls become covered with memorials of the dead and the sick. And he says, young, healthy people don't want to talk about sickness. They want to talk about sickness just about as much as they want to go visit hospitals. Right? You go into a hospital and it's weird and it smells weird. And he says, they go in there when they have to to visit their relatives and they get out as fast as they can because it's an icky place. And he says, churches, when we become all about sickness, young people become instinctively allergic to it. And, you know, it's hard as a pastor to reiterate what Bill Eason says without somebody thinking, oh, so you don't want to care about the sick, do you, Lars? No. Why do you, why do you always have to jump to the, why do everybody always have to take it to that conclusion? It makes sense that at certain stages of our lives, you know, illness is a big deal. I just turned 50, literally like two days ago I just turned 50. The time's coming, I will face that. I will want my church community to be there for me when I am sick. But I can remember very much being in my 20s and not particularly wanting to spend a lot of time in hospitals uh, other than when I was doing that for my work. You know, I cared about the people in the hospitals. I've never particularly liked being, being in them per se. I've never wanted to spend time there. There are people who do. God bless them. Uh, it is a gift. But when everything about God becomes the one that takes care of sickness and illness and disease, it, what does it do to the community? It creates kind of a negative base, right? And healthy people don't feel like they need it. I was reading a book. Uh, a guy was a evangelical, and he had done some really great work. He had talked about you know, these churches he planted, and he really had this passion for reaching people outside the church. And he was writing about how he was rethinking everything he'd been taught. And one of the things he'd been taught when doing evangelism was to try to find the did he, did, maybe he called it the gaps or the chinks in people's armor that you would listen and find out the spot in their life where they weren't cocky and they weren't assured and they didn't have the answers and that was your opening to talk about God. And he said that's what they'd been trained, that you would talk to someone and if you talked long enough you'd find what was missing and boom, you could come in there. And he said he was on this airplane and talking to this woman on this airplane and listening to her story, and he said she had no chinks in her armor. She had a good education, good career, good job, happy with her family, happy with her life. She had friends, she had a community, she volunteered with autism causes, she had meaning and purpose, life was good. He's like, I could not find a chink in her armor. They get to the end of the flight and she says, ah, so what do you do? And he goes, I'm a pastor. And she goes, I feel sorry for you. You could enjoy life so much more. And then she walks away. And yes, it was patronizing and snobby and rude, but almost like you wonder if she'd gotten the spiel before. Like, I got a good life. I don't need to go and talk about sickness every week. 
I, I have a cause. I, everything that you, you could provide. And she, I think she was kind of implying that your life is going to have less meaning because you're caught up in that religion stuff. I don't know. It came across snotty, but the guy pointed it out because he was saying, even as an evangelical, we've got to stop talking this way. We've got to stop this God of the gap stuff. We've got to stop this God only in the bad. Right? The God who's only present in the bad. Is God not present in the good? How do, you, how do you talk about God to college students where life is just full of opportunity and desire and satisfaction of desire and pleasure? And yes, there's lots of depression going around, but depressed college students are not beating down the doors of local churches. Why not? They're beating down the doors of the college therapist. They're not beating down the doors of the churches. They're not turning to churches for the answers to where the, the world of oyster of opportunity isn't working. And then again, he says, and, and I say it again, the center, God is to be the center of our life, not the end of resources. Not the end of our resources, right? And um, uh, I try to think of, you know, I, I, I'm a big hiker. Um, and when I was younger, I did lots of canoeing and lots of outdoor stuff. And I would run into many people, and I still do. You know, I don't need to go to church. I find God in nature. I sit on a mountain, and that's when I find God. And it used to really irritate me, but just two days ago, I was literally standing on top of a mountain. And I looked around, and it's hard not to when you get to a place like that, especially one that hasn't been overly destroyed with development to look around and feel some sense of awe and wonder. And there definitely is a peace of mind. And I can say that I can definitely communicate with God a lot better when I'm sitting on top of that mountain than when I'm sitting in front of the TV or in front of my computer. There, there is a peacefulness. There is an openness. And I think what I've gotten wrong in my critique of the I find God on the mountain is that I, Bonhoeffer listed it perfectly. I think for the people who are finding God on the mountain, they're finding God in the center of life. They're finding God in the world, in the creation. And that's what they're looking for, a, God, a spirituality in the world, not a spirituality of waiting for the world to end or until I'm dead and move on to the next one. And I don't think it's really a worshiping of religion in the way my Celtic ancestors kind of literally believed that the bog was God and the moss was God and the tree was God. I think it really is much more of finding that meaning and that transcendence in the world. But churches have not been good at catching that. We just think, oh, you're just lazy and you don't want to commit, so you go to the mountain. Okay, probably. The mountain doesn't ask for a tithe. It's true. There's probably some cynical part of that. But maybe they're just trying to find God in the world. And maybe that's what we should be listening to. They're finding God in creation. All right. And then he goes on the next one. And this is what I already covered. In health and vigor, not only in suffering. Right? This is Bill Eason in the Church of Sickness. We need to have something to say for people in health and vigor. And there needs to be talk about health and vigor in our sermons, in our ministries, in our prayers. Move to the next slide. The ground for this lies 
and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He is the center of life, and he certainly didn't come to answer our unsolved problems. From the center of life, certain questions and their answers are seen to be wholly irrelevant. I'm thinking of the judgment pronounced on Job's friends. In Christ, there are no Christian problems. Enough of this. I've just been disturbed again. <laughs> now, was he disturbed because he's sort of opening Pandora's box and going down the rabbit hole and thinking about this and it disturbs him? Or did somebody like literally come to his door and disturb him? They're both possibilities. He's in a prison, right? But boy, you want to throw a bomb out there that's going to, uh, you know, that, that, that'll create some controversy. Just, just repost that, right? God, Jesus did not come to solve our unsolved problems. He didn't come to solve our unsolved problems. How many sermons are about giving you two, three, five steps to solving your problems? How much of faith has been based on the idea that we are trying to solve problems and that problems are things that must all be solved? Can't we just be okay with knowing that there are things that we don't have answers to? Can't it be okay to dwell in the world with the problems we have? Uh, you know, Jesus certainly didn't say himself, I came to make your problems go away. If anything, if you listen to Jesus, following him makes more problems, right? His disciples ask him, you know, in the kingdom, can I have this thing and that thing and we'll have fields? And Jesus, we look at all the stuff we've left for you. What are we going to get? And he goes, oh, yeah, you'll get lots of stuff in the kingdom. You'll get fields of persecution. Again, I always thought that'd be a great name for a metal band. Um, that's what he promises. The Christian life's going to bring you more problems, not less. I didn't come to solve your problems. I come, to, I come to, to show you a different path in the world, not out of it, through it. If Jesus' whole plan was just to get people out of the world and prepare them for the next one, why, again, why bother with Samaritans and prodigal sons? Why bother with dying on a cross, you know? Why, why doesn't Jesus ever stand up and say, I see your marriage is struggling, you know, uh, Licinius, Quirinius, whatever us your name is. Let me tell you five points to make your marriage better. These are the tips for your relationship. Tip number one, you know, again, it's not a bad thing to improve our marriages and our relationships. We need to do that. There's a lot of, uh, our world's full of a lot of bad marriages and bad relationships, right? But the idea that Jesus came to solve our problems, you know, it, it, it puts the church in the position of finding the solutions. And if solutions can be found without the church, then the church becomes irrelevant. But if Jesus didn't come to, quote, solve our problems, but in fact to lead us to a new way of life in the world of our problems, then finding solutions to our problems doesn't make Jesus irrelevant. It makes Jesus more relevant. 
So maybe the question, and, and I've always said this, that, that you should look at the Gospels. Try reading the Gospels as, a, as, a, as an experiment, as a discipline. Read the Gospels without thinking about Paul and all the stuff later. Read the Gospels without any reference to any mention of heaven or hell or afterlife or eternity. Just read what those four Gospels say. And, and, and I think you will find, when you read through them, the amount of references that actually talk about heaven, hell, eternity, sin, damnation, are really quite few. There's a bunch of parables, especially in Matthew, you know, where a person in a parable gets cast into outer darkness. But I think you'll find there's a lot less of that stuff in there than what you've been taught to think there is. Jesus said, in the Gospel of John, it says God came to, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he's not coming to extract people from the world, what they call strip mining theology, right? You know, the, the world is all corrupt, but God's gonna, uh, God's gonna go and find the believers and suck them out and then torch the re leave the rest of it, you know, covered in heavy metals and toxic sludge. You know, that's, that's strip mining theology. That's not the Gospel of John, you know? So to try, try reading Jesus without any of, the, uh, any of the eternity problems, without the, quote, sin problem, right? God is wrathful and going to kill us all for sin, but thank God somebody's going to take the bullet. Jesus never says, I'm taking the bullet for sin. Not in so many words. He never says that. So maybe it is that, that, that Jesus himself was trying to teach us a way in this world, through this world, to, instead of a way out of it. But we, as people, as human beings, as Christians, got very uncomfortable with Jesus and his talk of carrying your cross and fields of persecution that it became a lot easier and a lot more comfortable to make Jesus a solution to a sin problem than to make Jesus a path through, through a suffering world. It's a lot easier to talk about, I avoided vices and didn't cheat on my wife and didn't swear too much so I get to go to heaven, rather than there's suffering in the world so I must go in and confront fascist dictators even if it means I go to jail and get tortured to death. There's a world of difference between those, right? If, if God's going to condemn the world anyways, all that matters is that I keep my slate clean enough to get into heaven. But if Jesus isn't dying for that purpose, if Jesus isn't dying to provide us with solutions to these problems, even human problems that we create, if Jesus isn't here to provide solutions but provide a path for us in the midst of it, that's a lot different. And I think Bonhoeffer's thinking, you know, maybe if my fellow German Christians had been more focused on you know, following Jesus through the fields of persecution, there would have been a lot fewer taking the Hitler oath. There would have been a lot fewer actually actively joining the Nazi party. And I think that's kind of a myth that we forget, that sometimes we, we, we wishfully like to think that the German people were either ignorant of what the Nazis were doing or that they begrudgingly went along with it at the point of a gun. But the reality is, is Hitler had widespread support for a long time. And a lot of dictators have widespread support among a big portion of the population. And they do that because they provide solutions 
Uh, it was the atheists who fought against Franco. It was the Catholic Church that supported him. And they supported him because they saw in his authoritarian ways the ability to use authority and power to keep out the atheist socialists who would undermine the authority of the church. But again, they can only undermine the authority of, your, of the church if your church is giving solutions to problems, right? And that's been a, that, that would be a critique, I would argue, is, for example, going to Scandinavia. Why do so few people in Scandinavia go to church? Well, if the purpose of church is to give solutions to our problems and the welfare state can provide most of those solutions, it really does beg the question, do, I re do you really need God in Sweden? You know, well, I'd argue yes, uh, but we have to rethink finding God in the fullness of life and not in finding God as the solution to the problems of life or as a rescuer out of the problems of life. So, good questions to think about. I'm going to wrap it up there. I'm going to leave it there for you today. Um, as always, feel free to leave your questions or comments. Feel free to message me with comments uh, as long as you're not a troll. Uh, but good discussion and debate, and I hope you uh, have some good thoughts and ideas, and I hope you know that just like Bonhoeffer, I am a lover of the church. I'm not doing, I'm not doing this to church bash or to undermine faith, but that when I read this stuff, I see valid questions that we need to answer today, uh, and they're not going to go away by not answering them, right? Uh, and that we're not going to, we are not going to find a path forward as a church while uh, closing our eyes and pretending that social and cultural and scientific change as if they haven't happened. Uh, you can't unring that bell and wind that clock back. So, nor do we really want to. Uh, anyways, thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week with more of Bonhoeffer's Thoughts from Prison. I hope you all have a good week, and God bless. <laughs>